Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just a quick note before we start. Um... Somehow I forgot to put in the attribution for the intro quote, and Andrew didn't catch it, and then blended music over over the end of the intro quote, so I can't go back and add it in now. So I'll just say, first of all, uh, the quote is from the Liturgy for the Marriage Service, which was written sometime between the 11th and 16th centuries uh, in uh, Salisbury in England. The quote is from Women's Lives in Medieval Europe, a source book, edited by Emile Amt. And uh, I very, very much need to thank the people who helped me record it. Gary Giraud from the French History Podcast, Aziz from History of Westeros Podcast, Brie from the Pontifax Podcast, uh, that's three, uh, then it was me and my wife. So, uh, thanks everybody for helping. And uh, just really quick, I just remembered... Um, the podcast ended up on the top 100 European history podcasts, which is kind of a very specific accolade to get. And it's um, it's on a Feedspot blog. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I'm kind of flattered. That's kind of fun. I don't know what their selection process was, but thanks. As you know, this show is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month, we are welcoming a brand new show to the network, brand new in the sense that they are literally starting uh, today. Today is the first day, uh, January 14th, 2020, and uh, it is Revolution 1, and it, I'm very excited to listen to it, and I hope you are too after you hear this trailer. A striking development in the North African nation of Tunisia. Tonight, after violent protests that have lasted for weeks, the Tunisian government has fallen. You don't know if it's tear gas. It could be bullets. I didn't expect to see one of my friends shot in the chest in front of me. I'm Aaron Brown. And I'm Cyrus Rodell. And this is Revolution One from the Agora Podcast Network where we bring the story of the Tunisian Revolution to life through the voices of those who lived it. It was the mother of one of the martyrs who pushed me to take the photos. She was saying, you have to show the world what's really happening in Tunisia. We wanted to know what it takes to bring down a dictator. So we went to where the Arab Spring began, to Tunisia, where 10 years ago, a desperate young fruit seller set himself on fire and set a new course for his country and the world. We'll tell you the incredible story of how a military officer and a hairdresser managed to create an ironclad police state that they ruled from yachts and mansions for 23 years. And over the course of eight episodes, we'll hear from the political prisoners, spies, and students who, armed with nothing more than rocks and Facebook, brought it all down. 
Ten years on, we're still feeling the effects of the Arab Spring today. From the global migration crisis to the rise in nationalism in Europe and the U.S. And with popular uprisings from Hong Kong to Black Lives Matter still gripping the headlines, we thought it would be the perfect time to look back to Revolution One. Join us on January 14th, wherever you get your podcasts. It is only right and proper that we take time every episode to give honor and praise to those who have put their hard-earned money cash on the line for our great kingdom. First up, we have Connor, whose noble services to our land have earned him the cognomen Sir Connor, the tufted titmouse of the Thames. Thank you to donor Connor. Up next, we have patron Peter, who shall be known from henceforward as Brother Peter, the accidental martyr. Up next, we have Lizanne, whose services to the kingdom are glorious, and who shall be known henceforward as Lady Lizanne kept her dowry. Landgrave Joseph, the fungus gnat, has raised his pledge to the kingdom, and therefore will be granted additional titles and lands. Landgrave Joseph the Fungus Gnat shall be known from henceforward as Landgrave Joseph the Fungus Gnat, the High Honorable Kasha of the Varnishka Seas. All of our worthy donors and patrons are due our thanks for their glorious services to this kingdom. Keep the lights on and keep me coming back to the computer. However, theirs is not the only way to help. If you appreciate this podcast and wish to do your part, go to the website page and go to the support page, and you'll find ways to either donate via PayPal or Patreon there. But as I said, there are other ways to support the show. Tell a friend, tell a relative, tell random forest creatures, if that is somehow in your uh, repertoire. And then, of course, you can rate and review on Apple Podcasts. That's still roughly 50% of the market. If you listen on a different platform and they will let you rate and review, do so. You can also tell people on forums, on the internets. I hear that's a good way to get things around. Check out the website in general. There's some fun stuff on there. I'm working on getting the store set up, hopefully this week. We now have the capacity. We just need to do it. And yeah, so... That's that, and let's get started. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this is not their story. Salisbury, England, 11th century. Without telling the kids. On the following night, when the bridegroom and bride have gone to bed, the priest shall approach and bless the bedchamber, saying, The Lord be with you. And, and with, with thy spirit. spirit. Let us pray. Bless, O Lord, this chamber and all that dwell therein, that they may be established in thy peace and abide in thy will, and live and grow in thy love, and that the length of their days may be multiplied through, etc. Blessing over the bed only. The Lord be with you. And, and, with, and with thy spirit. spirit. Let us pray. Bless, O Lord, the sleeping chamber, who neither slumberest nor sleepest. Thou who watchest over Israel, watch over these thy servants who rest in this bed, guarding them from all fantasies and illusions of devils. Guard them waking, that they may meditate upon thy commandments. Guard them sleeping, that in their slumber they may think of thee, and that here and everywhere, 
they may ever be defended by the help of thy protection, through etc. Then shall this blessing be said over them in bed. Let us pray. God bless your bodies and souls, and bestow his blessing upon you, as he blessed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen. Amen. Another blessing over them. Let us pray. May the hand of the Lord be over you, and may he send his holy angel to guard and tend you all the days of your life. Amen. Amen. Another blessing over them. Let us pray. The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost bless you, triune in number and one in name. Amen. This done, the priest shall sprinkle them with holy water, and dismissing them in peace, so depart. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 71, Women in the Law, part 2, Land and Marriage. In the last real episode, we discussed the character of women and the law in the Middle Ages. There was a wide span of characterizations across time and space, but looking at a handful of law codes and documents that survive, we can say that the period started with women in many ways being treated as invalids living under the wardship of men. However, we learned in earlier episodes that this strict gender divide was in many ways only present within written laws, with women in practice often enjoying positions of power in society, or at least being common participants in everyday life in the economy. This was eventually reflected in court documents, and over the course of the Middle Ages, this mismatch between practice and law closed as common law systems and law codes alike made space for women to appear in court settings for reasons mundane and existential. Amongst the most existential legal situations possible for a woman in the Middle Ages to be in was for a woman to appear in court to accuse someone of rape. And so last time out, we finally made time to address how the rubber met the road on this vital issue of daily life for women in the Middle Ages. Given the time and place, I was as charitable as I could be towards a system without the advantages of modern forensic systems and scientific methods. Goodness knows our modern justice system has let us down from time to time. Nonetheless, we should remember that the medieval justice system was not interested in our modern ideas of fairness. It protected the wealthy and the popular, and that was seen by most as a feature and not a bug, since most people had a stake in the system and the alternative was seen as chaos. After all, if the law didn't protect people with power, why should they allow it to limit their actions? This system tended to leave women at a major disadvantage in court, but prosecutions could and did happen, and if a man was convicted, the penalties could be somewhat satisfyingly severe. Today I'll be discussing the other key facet concerning women in the law that I am using to summarize this huge topic. Namely, I will be discussing the complicated set of legal norms surrounding marriage and inheritance. Marriage and inheritance may not seem related, but is love not merely the preamble to death? Every act of devotion and loyalty is a joyful but vain act of defiance, as we all ultimately die alone and in pain our consciousness stripped of its biological appendages, and exposed to the totality of the void. Oh, uh, wait. Sorry, I got my notes mixed up. That was for my upcoming TED Talk entitled Conversation Topics for Thanksgiving Zoom Calls. 
And that joke, of course, gives you some indication of how long I've been working on this script. Okay, here we go. Marriage and inheritance may not seem related, but actually they are all part of the same process in any pre-modern society. Particularly in the European Middle Ages, relationships were the primary method of organizing society, and the extended family or clan was the primary grouping within society. At the core of the fractal-like network of alliances, friendships, vassal bonds, and legal obligations of the society, ties of family were the closest network of bonds that helped define an individual's place in the world and their prospects. But of course, the thing that determined how useful these bonds were was the access they gave an individual to resources. Many of these resources were based on further relationships of the family members in terms of reputation, popularity, friendship, alliances, etc. We will see in the upcoming episodes on unfreedom how the law actually did have a lot to say about these kinds of bonds. But if the law had a few things to say about everyday relationships, it had a whole heck of a lot to say about how property was held as a result of marriage relationships and family relationships. Now, this may seem strange. As we've mentioned in earlier episodes, women in classical antiquity were treated as perpetual minors, which means that, amongst other things, they were never considered to own property in their own right. Indeed, feminist historians of a certain age would say, or did say for a while anyway, that marriage was not necessarily about property, but was about selling exclusive access to sex as a means of reproduction and carrying on the family line. But while sex and legitimate heirs are definitely part of the picture, no one spent the majority of their time in marriage negotiations analyzing fertility rates. They would be arguing about property, and that's because these societies practiced dowry marriages, which means that now I have to define dowries. In simple terms, dowries are a payment of cash or property made by the bride's family to the groom upon the completion of marriage. In modern times, this mix of love and property seems distasteful, and it comes off as if the bride's family were paying the husband to get rid of their daughter. And to be sure, the mix of economics and family planning has some terrible consequences in many societies, since girls came to be seen as a net economic negative in places that practice and practiced dowry marriages. On the other hand, the purpose of a dowry, at least according to some commentators in some time periods, is sort of like a modern trust fund, something intended to help take care of a person on an ongoing basis. In this case, the dowry is intended to take care of the bride and ensure that the couple are set up on sound economic footings. In a time when women were not considered to generate any kind of economic good, the dowry helped ensure everyone was settled in their new life. Of course, we know from previous episodes that women were vital to the economy of the Middle Ages, and I suspect it was similar in antiquity, but that's how they saw it. So the classical assertion of perpetual female wardship has this weird proviso attached, where the dowry is not the wife's property, but it's earmarked for her care. In antiquity, this led to all the shenanigans that you might expect, but we are not here to talk about antiquity, but to bury it. Because German society had an almost opposite system, called the bride price system where a groom paid a bride's family for taking her into his household. While this is also deeply distasteful from a modern standpoint, given that this looks an awful lot like buying a piece of livestock, it did have some advantages, at least in terms of assuring that families valued their daughters economically. Regardless, when German and Roman traditions began to blend in the early Middle Ages, you had two completely opposed systems of marriage, one where the groom paid money and one where the bride's family paid money, and needless to say, hilarity ensued. There were all sorts of halfway arrangements where, say, the wife and husband had individual property, and then any gains that were made while they were married would be joint property. Kind of a weird Iron Age prenup where the horses are mine, the sheets are yours, but the fondue set is ours. 
Other places had all the property belonging to the husband, in others all property was blended and owned jointly, and any major transaction required the assent of both partners. What specific set of laws you lived under was determined by local conditions and traditions, so getting born was, as always, a huge roll of the dice. Has Terry Gilliam ever made a movie where getting born is like a game show? Probably. Anyway. What eventually developed in the Middle Ages was that, while the marriage lasted, the husband had practical control of all the property and used it for the household's collective advantage, which is to say his own advantage. That said, the earlier blended traditions often persisted under the hood, so to speak, gradually homogenizing but never quite going away, and leaving some disparate legal traditions in various places. For the purposes of defining a normative case, let me just say that usually, in many places, the legal system made a distinction of ownership of the various pieces of property, but while both parties were alive and living together, it was the joint property of the household, and the man was the head of the household. Just hold this normative case loosely in your mind as we go forward. But what happened when the husband died, or the marriage failed? We'll talk about divorce a little bit later in the show, but for now we should be clear that when a marriage failed or disintegrated due to death, usually the bits of property that made up the household devolved into a series of component parts, with those parts going to the appropriate spouse or their heirs. So what happened, for example, to the woman's part of the household in the case of the husband's death? Well, in the ancient world, this would go to the closest adult male relative, to be managed in the best interest of the woman until she was either remarried or died. As usual, the late classical period altered the specifics in some important ways, which we will address in a moment. But on a practical de facto level, this was basically the baseline through the Middle Ages as well. In practice, upon the death of a husband, most women would seek shelter with a son or other male relative who would manage her assets while she figured out what to do next. The biggest practical difference was that she could add join a convent as a possible third option for a woman with some property. As we discussed in earlier episodes, the dowry would go to the convent in such a case to help keep the lights on. Podcast footnote. I don't think I've spelled all this out before, so I'm just going to slot this in here for lack of another episode to talk about it in, but let's talk about elder care for a minute. So an elderly person taking shelter with a monastery did not necessarily require them to take vows. Many convents and monasteries maintained quarters for the care of the elderly, usually in a separate wing, as a kind of primordial retirement community. Usually this was primarily for the care of wealthy people, but there was always an anxiety about these spaces in religious circles. Taking care of elderly people was nice and all, but having non-religious people living in a religious community was seen as a potential source of corruption, especially when younger, embarrassing female relatives were put in these convents for safekeeping. So there was a wide range of how living conditions in these places looked on the ground. The spaces for men seemed to have been more predictable and open to people of lesser means. Given the economic difficulty of convents, spaces in such communities were usually restricted to the wealthy. Of course, many elderly people were actually sick, and these individuals could be cared for by the medical staff attached to most religious orders if they had the means. This function would be slowly spun off into hospitals over the course of time, though we would mostly call them hospices from a modern standpoint, but that's actually after our current time period. There is one more situation worth discussing, which is the real reason I wanted to talk about this in this episode. I'm not sure if we've discussed it before, I feel like I've mentioned it, but monasteries and convents needed beeswax candles for their rituals, and in an age before modern beekeeping techniques, these candles were exceptionally expensive. The modern technique where you can take out a, a panel and not destroy the entire hive was 
I think it existed, but it, apparently it wasn't in common use in Europe in the early Middle Ages. So basically, every year, if you wanted wax or honey, you had to destroy the hive, which made things very expensive, as you can imagine. So, many religious orders had a system in which they would pay a stipend to elderly widows to remain out in the countryside in their houses, and in return, the widow would just provide them with candles. The widow would basically have all her material needs seen to and would be under the protection of the monastic community, which meant that rather than doing the arduous tasks needed to survive as a farmer, she could instead focus her time and energy on beekeeping, which was probably not easy for an elderly person, but was definitely more practical than like plowing a field and stuff. The honey was sold by the widow as a nice sideline to the business, and the monastic community got free candles, so it's kind of a win-win-win. The practice was widespread in Europe, and while it died out after a while, as beekeeping improved and the free market began producing cheaper candles, there were other programs sort of like this that various monastic orders ran in different areas and at different times. For example, we have one deal made in England by a peasant of sort of middling wealth with no children, who leased his lands to the monastery for the rest of his life in return for a small house and the provision of food from the monastery kitchens. And then upon his death, it would be donated to the monastery. So, to review, the religious communities could provide room and board to wealthy persons within their walls, though often in a separate wing of the community, and this could be controversial. But it was sort of like a retirement community today, with the odd rich brat running around as well. Religious orders could provide long-term medical care if needed, but probably their biggest impact was as providing a set of what we might call social programs, or let's call them middle-class peasants. Of course, most people in the Middle Ages did not utilize these primordial elder care systems. Partly this was because people died young, but also because most people who made it to that age would simply live with their kids, with the parent turning control of the property over to their adult children in return for room and board and medical care. We know this because, unfortunately, these arrangements sometimes went wrong, leading the parties to sue each other. Something to keep in mind next time you hear someone say kids not taking care of their parents is somehow new. End podcast footnote. So, at its most basic level, the dowry marriage system made marriage a property deal between families rather than being about romance, but then that's a false dichotomy influenced by modern ideals. In a traditional society, any kind of major status and relationship change affects the full family unit, because every person in the family is an asset to the collective prosperity. This would be doubly true in a feudal society like Europe, where personal ties of loyalty and kinship were paramount. Even in societies where the dowry system does not exist, or exist in very different forms, marriages still tend or tended to represent a way to build alliances between families based on having people with, like, blended loyalties in each camp, as it were. If you doubt my word, go check out Chris Stewart's History of China podcast and check out some of the harem politics of the Chinese emperors. Furthermore, it doesn't require high-stakes property deals for a parent to want their kids to make good decisions about who they spend their life with, and for many parents to feel that their adolescent child might not be the best person to make that decision while under the influence of what we would call hormones. One need only watch Fiddler on the Roof to see the story of a family in a rather traditional setting, not particularly concerned about property transactions, and yet having genuine concerns about the marriages being made by their kids. Even today, a parent would be forgiven for preferring their kid get hitched to the nice guy with a stable job and the funded retirement plan, rather than the bad boy with a vaguely promising career as a DJ in the so-trendy-you-haven't-heard-of-it dubstep polka scene. 
In the Middle Ages, when collective decision-making was standard, it should not be a surprise that these natural human tendencies were blended with strategic clan considerations, and in an era without a centralized state predicated on protecting individual human rights, the feelings of the clan were, let's say, very important in what you could do in daily life. So just to say this clearly, marriages that were at some level arranged by the family seem to have been the basic standard unit of measure in Europe in the Middle Ages, largely regardless of class. While it was definitely encouraged that the kids sort of be on board with the whole situation, the view, especially early on, was that the kids were not competent to make that kind of important decision, especially the bride. And so socially forced marriages were, let's say, not uncommon. Interestingly, here the ideological aspirations of Christianity ran headlong into the muddy realities of day-to-day -day life. While we've seen that the church was not out there telling kids they should all go elope with the first hot cowherd that got their passions going, nonetheless, the early church was actually pretty big on marriage as a sacred space of duty, compassion, and affection, and of a society based on people making decisions based on what was right, rather than what was profitable and forced on them by the tyranny of practical realities. Many of the early saints and martyrs were women, and in many of their stories, their mean parents want them to marry some old rich dude, while the meek young woman in question would rather marry Christ, or alternatively be sacrificed to lions. Trial and tribulations follow. Popular stories, even in the ancient world, are similarly full of kids who don't like their parents' choice, and suffer abuse as a result. The clear sympathy of these stories tends towards allowing young kids to make their own choices if they're the result of genuine and well-thought-out feelings. On the other hand, scripture itself is fairly sparse in terms of telling the church how to regulate these situations, and marriage in general, because during the Roman Empire, marriage was a civil affair, controlled by the families involved. And those families were often rich and powerful and might not take kindly to this new church trying to meddle with how they raised their kids. So for a very long time, the church had no clear doctrine on what constituted a legal secular marriage, or marriage at all. The early church did eventually take over marriage services, if for no other reason than to keep people from going to pagan temples to be married, but the services were just as often done without priests and based on whatever local tradition dictated. Some church commentators still saw marriage as a sinful but necessary practice and insisted that it happen outside the church door, though this could have been a post-hoc justification of pagan practices, where big events happened in front of temples rather than inside, and where it was important to have witnesses to a marriage. In any case, as long as there were no pagan deities invoked, the church let everyone do whatever. So the local authorities continued to enforce legal doctrines, at least until the empire fell and faded. In this vacuum, problems developed, and what the problems were varied by class. In the upper classes, older customs prevailed, which sounds fine until you remember our Emmy Award-winning series of episodes on Adelaide of Italy. You'll recall that Berengar II, who had murdered her husband and father, tried to force Adelaide to remarry his son using physical force. It didn't work in her case, but that was somewhat exceptional. You only need to listen to the episode or two before that to be reminded of Otto's sister, who married one of the two scheming slimeballs who had gotten her husband killed and who were actively at war with her brother at the time, but she happened to be in their power, and so one of them married her. Totally voluntarily, I'm sure. In short, sword point marriages amongst the Germanic nobility were common, and this became very problematic, because while the church was not exactly clear on how a person became married, it was clear that marriage and rape were you know, different. But also that divorce was absolutely not kosher. 
You could not expect a wife to be meek and loyal to the man who had killed her fiancé and kidnapped her, as was not uncommon in Germanic societies. But then once a marriage happened, well, let's talk about divorce now. In modern society, you hear a lot of people complaining about divorce rates. But actually, we tend to very much intrinsically appreciate the social benefits of divorce, so much so that they're just sort of the water we live in. These benefits are in the sense of not locking people into dangerous unions with barbarian psychopaths, or just even in terms of not having people be forced to be miserable for the rest of their lives due to a decision they made when they were a teenager. That said, the view that these medieval bans on divorce were inherently bad for women is in some sense another product of modern changes in society. In a social context where women were not seen as being able to survive economically on their own, divorcing your wife in order to upgrade to a younger model was not just poor taste, it was arguably akin to murder. The passages of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is quoted as commenting on divorce, which is basically the only time Jesus comments on marriage, they seem to come at the whole situation from that perspective. In other words, the passages seem to be commenting on this kind of casual and potentially fatal cruelty in mundane human relationships, rather than on forcing women to stay in their box. At least that's a reasonable interpretation to me, a basically agnostic yet for some reason practicing Jew. Other commentators say it's a metaphor for God's relationship with souls in the afterlife. So your mileage may vary. In any case, the church fathers at the time agreed that this was definitely actually about how divorce was not okay. Marriage may be a barely acceptable way to legalize sex, but once you're married, it's definitely for life. And to be fair, a lot of the reason for that is out of kindness for the woman, given the context of the society. Now, in modern times, economics have shifted. Now it's impossible for even men to survive on single income. So our perspective on divorce is entirely different. The point of all this is that if you end up married to a violent psychopath, that's it, right? End of story. No divorce. You just have to suffer till you die because God said so. Well, no. The church had a compromise position. As we mentioned somewhat in passing in a previous episode, the church did allow for separations due to domestic violence and infidelity, amongst a few other circumstances. In these situations, the partners in the marriage could live separately and not be at fault for failing to perform their duties as a spouse, which included things like sex and taking care of their partner's well-being. A separated partner was absolved of these duties, and, more importantly for this episode, the household property could be divided up in a way that's actually very reminiscent of modern divorce law. This allowed the spouses to live separately, using their part of the economic resources of the household to support themselves. That said, the state was supposed to be temporary, if uh, often long-term, and the couple could not remarry unless one of the partners died. The church developed a fairly complex set of laws and precedents around this practice, which included the concept of fault. So, for example, a woman who was cheated on or abused by her spouse repeatedly could actually take back possession of her dowry from her husband, and potentially even be given a major share of their joint property in particularly egregious cases. Sometimes this included the wife keeping the house, thus kicking her man to the curb. This was intended to ensure her well-being economically, and provided some incentive for good behavior by husbands particularly in marriages where the dowry was a large share of the family fortune, which was not uncommon. On the other hand, if she took up with a new partner, that would be sinful, and she could lose access to some or all of the property. And of course, in an age of sword point marriages, this was not exactly a stable position unless the woman had a strong support network. All that said, the husband had these rights too if he was wronged, an aspect of these laws that predictably makes the power dynamic rather lopsided in the husband's favor, unfortunately. 
Husbands could legally kick out their wife for a specified set of wrongs and keep the joint property. In cases where the wife had been particularly sinful in the eyes of the church, in terms of, again, physical abuse or infidelity, the husband could often get some or all of the dowry, leaving the woman homeless and without resources. All of this sort of undercuts the original intent of the ban on divorce, especially when we consider how differently medieval society felt about male promiscuity versus female promiscuity, though it should be said that there was usually an extremely heavy pressure on couples to resume cohabitation, and husbands were usually required to provide some sort of living for their wives that they had kicked out. The real point is that there was some capacity within some interpretations of church law for women to escape economically and physically from their husbands, though it would not meet modern standards of equity and it would require quite a lot of effort and show social embarrassment. Podcast footnote. One form of separation was recognized and even encouraged by the church, and we should just mention it here. Married individuals who became nuns or monks had to obtain the consent of their partner and then had to go through the full process of taking orders, which often took years, depending on the monastic community involved. The church was somewhat split in these situations, as they believed both in the importance of monasticism and also in the importance of marital duties. The written laws often put a lot of time and emphasis on how important it is to get consent and have witnesses, etc. The other written documents are a bit more sparse on how the spouses felt about the situation. One often gets the feeling that the spouse has been worn down over time or is strategically ignored by commentators. In cases where one spouse stays outside of the religious orders, they were not usually allowed to remarry, though they were provided economic support by their spouse. In situations where both spouses joined the orders, it's a bit unclear to me how the property was divided up, but I would assume that the dowry at least would follow the wife into the convent's coffers. I mean halls. The husband's property was actually less important in terms of the contribution to the monastic order, since the orders got many donations from wealthy families. The important thing was that he gave the property away, though some contribution to the order was probably just in good taste and helped secure him a higher position within the order. That said, if the couples had kids, the kids would certainly get their expected inheritances before any money went to the monastic orders. End podcast footnote. So, getting back to the issue of sword point marriages. If you got kidnapped by the local barbarian chieftain who forced you to say that you were married, that could be it from the eyes of church law. And then if, say, that chieftain wanted to marry someone else, the church would have to politely inform them that actually that was illegal. He was stuck with you until you died. Potentially in some sort of unfortunate accident. This resulted in problems. The church was pretty clear from about the year 1000 that this kind of thing was actually, you know, a rape and not a marriage, and that mutual consent was required for a marriage to be valid. Nonetheless, this raised the issue of what constituted consent, and whether that definition involved the parents and guardians of the persons involved, and this became the subject of a very long discussion and -and back-and-forth debate over basically the entire course of the Middle Ages. Many of these issues were not dealt with directly by canon law until the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, and even that venerable committee left many dangling threads that were only shown up by the Council of Trent in 1563, with the sad pact being that sword point marriages remained a feature of European social life for much of this period. On the opposite end of the spectrum from sword point marriages, we have the issue of secret or private marriages. You see, according to some local traditions, interpretations of church doctrine and just random happenstance, it came to be accepted in some places that there was no real need for a ceremony in a marriage at all. All that was required was that the two parties involved say that they were married to each other. That's it. 
Needless to say, many lusty youths carried away by their passions snuck off into the moonlight and exchanged words. Much to the rage of their families, the church was basically fine with this, so the families would then have to get together and figure out which sheep pastures belonged to who now, or just disinherit everybody entirely, which was actually more common. But such ad hoc arrangements led to genuinely dangerous situations. Many, many, many court records detail civil suits where a woman snuck off into the moonlight with the medieval equivalent of the aforementioned bad boy dubstep polka DJ. And they said some stuff to each other. And then when the girl became pregnant, Mr. Polka DJ denied that anything ever happened or found some sort of sneaky legal exit. For example, in one case, he claimed to have said, I will marry you rather than I do marry you which in turn constituted a betrothal and not an actual marriage. And of course, you could get out of betrothals. Less slimy and more terrifying, a rapist could claim that the two were actually secretly married and that the bride got cold feet and falsely accused him of rape. Since marital rape was not recognized as such in the Middle Ages, this could be a major threat to the cause of a single woman without witnesses and incidentally helps explain the persistence of sword point marriages. This whole marriage without witnesses in the moonlight behind the church thing may sound insane until you remember that common law marriages remain valid from a legal standpoint in many Anglophone countries up to the present day. Albeit, modern common law marriages require something like seven years of cohabitation rather than a few minutes without witnesses. Ultimately, the Catholic Church set up a very long list of very specific requirements for a marriage to be legal under canon law. But again, many of these rules were not universally applied until the Fourth Lateran Council, and the requirement that the ceremony be officiated by a parish priest wasn't actually spelled out until the Council of Trent, again, in the early modern period. Even after the Council of Trent, the Church continued to recognize secret marriages as valid from the standpoint of banning divorce, at least in jurisdictions where the practice was condoned by secular authorities. So this is bonkers. This went on for centuries. All of this is to say that there were a few ways to get married in the Middle Ages depending on class, time period, and place. From secret or common law marriages, to marriage at sword point, to negotiated deals between families, which was by far the most common method, there was a whole skew of ways to end up tied up to someone. Secret marriages were more common amongst the lower classes, but there are definitely instances in court records where people within the nobility were involved in some way with these events. We mostly hear about these marriages from the legal repercussions, so it isn't clear how prevalent they were, but we should probably assume that a fairly large proportion of all marriages worked this way in the lower classes, though, again, not necessarily the majority, and that most of those marriages generated no legal cases. In fact, and contrary to what I sort of indicated before about the families being upset, there is actually some evidence that in many cases, this is just how things worked in some areas. In fact, rather than being angry, some accounts of small villages have the parents sort of clapping their kids on the back afterwards and, you know, throwing them a party. It may even be in some places that this just constituted how marriage worked. And so, again, there's a lot of overlap, potentially, between the two kids sneaking off in the moonlight and beforehand the parents all negotiating everything out. Sword point marriages were more common at the beginning of the Middle Ages and probably were more common amongst the nobility even at that time. While there are definitely indications that of lower class marital abductions, from a practical level, you need to have the resources to kidnap someone, take them somewhere else, get society to normalize your behavior, and not get murdered by her dad if you're going to make a sword point marriage stick. 
The above notwithstanding, the negotiated marriage contract is definitely the most prevalent in the records and probably constituted the majority of marriages, at least amongst people with any kind of property, and with any fear of getting murdered by an angry dad. I will include peasants in that category. Many manor records contain marriage contracts between peasant families. While they didn't involve the massive geopolitical shifts that obsessed the upper classes, a bride coming to her new household often provided the kinds of pots and utensils required to set up a new life, and these possessions often constituted a not inconsiderable portion of the property, even of a wealthy peasant. And often these marriages did involve some land-changing hands as well. And just to say this, we should also remember that just because they weren't ordering armies around doesn't mean that medieval peasants were not political animals. To the contrary, many villages had elections for local leadership positions, and even when these positions were appointed by the lord, status within a village was taken into account in these decision-making processes. So many of these marriages probably involved trading political favors within the context of village life. Podcast footnote. This is probably a good time to remind you of all the stuff I've discussed in previous episodes about how households were constituted in the Middle Ages and the divide between Northern and Southern Europe. Now, this is not an absolute statement, but generally, in Southern Europe, the happy couple might be expected to move in with the husband's extended family in a large extended family household, at least for several years, depending on the wealth of the people involved. In Northern Europe, the couple could generally not get married from a social perspective until the husband had enough wealth to set up an independent household in which the couple would live together, though... That said, in the case of secret marriages, maybe the impulsive young couple might not have taken that all into account. And, that said, aging parents often ended up taking up residence in the children's house, or the kids might live with the parents on a temporary basis that became permanent. Still, this difference is generally worth keeping in mind as we sort of imagine how marriages worked. End podcast footnote. Okay, so we've discussed how people got married, and the considerations that drove these family alliances. But the place of the women in these marriages did not remain static from ancient Athens up to the early modern period. There were some subtle changes that occurred, primarily during the late years of the Roman Empire, that came to make a huge amount of difference. Namely, women were allowed to hold and own property. In general, during a marriage, this property was usually de facto governed by the husband, and during childhood, the property would be owned by the father. But theoretically, an independent woman or widow could gain control over their property directly, rather than being handed off along with the woman to whatever distant male relative the authorities were able to track down. This seemingly small change had some really profound implications. As is custom, let's unbox those implications, shall we? The woman's property was usually in the form of a dowry, which could be substantial. In many marriages, the wife's family was wealthy while the husband's family had fancy titles and bad luck with money, often leading to situations where the woman actually had more resources than the man. The power dynamics of such matches are often fascinating. As I said earlier, in general and in the early Middle Ages, the wife's property in the form of the dowry was under the control of the husband during the marriage. This was not the case all across Europe during the entire Middle Ages. In practice, the husband controlled the property day to day, but in some places there was a wide variation in what kind of legal and real control the wife had. In one particularly amusing code, the wife was allowed to directly take control of her property if the husband was agreed to be inept in its management by a number of witnesses. In at least one instance, a wife whose dowry was larger than her husband's property kicked him out of the house and got the court to confirm this decision in front of all the nobles in the countryside. More commonly, the authorities would simply put limits on what the husband could do with that property. 
For example, if the couple were given a field as part of a dowry, in parts of England the husband might need explicit permission from the wife to sell it. On the continent, in many parts of Francia, the husband might need to get permission from the wife's family. In many places, both partners had to sign the sale documents together, and in some places, the person whose name came first on the document indicated who actually owned the property. Women taking legal control of their dowries from within a marriage was, while possible, not common. The most common way of taking control was for the husband to die. When that happened, the dowry reverted to the wife. In some jurisdictions, she got a cut of the rest of her husband's property as well, while in others the dowry constituted the whole of her personal inheritance, and the rest of the husband's property would be divided amongst the children. This is particularly true in Italy. That said, even in these locations, the widow often had a great scope for the control of the property, since the dowries could be substantial and, if the children were young, the widow would control the property until they came of age. Ultimately, when the widow died, her property, including the dowry, would be shared out amongst the children. If, on the other hand, the widow had remarried, the dowry and the original inheritance from the first marriage would come under the control of the new husband, and then any new children would have an equal claim to the dowry as any children from the first marriage. But the joint property from the first marriage was supposed to only go to the children of that marriage from the first marriage, whereas any new property generated by the second marriage would go to the children of the second marriage. Easy. Okay, confused? Fair. But the point is that the simple act of allowing women to control property directly when there were no men around gave them a huge potential for personal agency, made it so the legal system had to let itself talk to them, and yeah, also made the legalities of inheritance massively complex. On the other hand, before we start thinking that this is some sort of proto-feminist utopia, remember that we're still talking about a society with sword point marriages. So a widow has the potential to have genuine agency for the first time in her life. But if her kids were young, this also exposed her to the difficulties of raising children, managing property, all while fending off homicidal thugs who could potentially seek to kidnap her or threaten her children to extract a marriage, which would let them control her property. As a result, widows could have a lot of freedom in places where the rule of law was relatively stable and they had strong protective alliances. Nonetheless, many women did not see things this way, for practical reasons. For many women, the best use of the agency that they'd been given by their situation was in the choice of a new husband, who they could hope would protect them from kidnapping and basically take care of their children from the first marriage, and not be some kind of monster. And, of course, unfortunately, when people are out making marriages based on fear and material gain and the ticking clock of neighboring thugs, some of these blended households could be fairly unhappy places for those children, thus leading to the stereotype of the wicked step-parent. Though I do have to say that in my review of the records, I found far more good step-parents than bad ones, at least given the medieval definitions of good parenting. Still, that could be a distortion in the sources that I've consulted. The rulers of the Middle Ages were not insensible to the problem of forced marriage and all the fun family dynamics that went along with it. Notably, from an early stage, Christianity made the protection of widows and orphans kind of a watchword for good rulership, and so these rulers created laws to help manage these dangers. In many places, particularly in southern Europe, widows and orphans who were without male protection from close male relatives were placed directly under the protection of their immediate feudal overlord. It is a bit after our time period, but Frederick II of Sicily made it a point that the governors of each region assign widows and orphans from their territory to specific bureaucrats under the command of the king, who were then tasked with looking after them and finding them good marriages. At a similar time period, Henry II in England was having lists drawn up of all the widows and orphans in England to ensure no one got left behind. 
Lest we go thinking that these wise and honorable rulers were doing this out of the kindness of their hearts, there is another side to this. First off, it was nearly universal across Europe that a feudal overlord got to charge a harriet to a newlywed couple, which is to say you paid a marriage tax. Lords often had the right to veto marriages as well, but then lords who were arranging marriages for wealthy widows and orphans got a lot more out of the bargain than just a harriet. While the marriage was being arranged, the lord, who was after all seeing to the care and protection of these poor lambs, was allowed to manage their lands as his own, and take all the revenues as a result to compensate them for the trouble. This became a huge issue in the reign of Prince John of England, who would just not marry people off, live off their incomes, and run their properties into the ground. Even when the overlord did eventually marry these widows and orphans off, the deal often worked more for the favor of the lord than the family of the widow and the orphan. So the lord would use this marriage as a source of patronage to be handed out to his followers or to secure his control over some territory. Which is to say that rather than be subject to sword point marriages from random thugs, now the widow and orphans of Europe were subject to forced marriages by their legal overlord. Horrible as the idea might seem to us, this set of regulations and the very real potential for abuse was seen as a feature and not a bug in the eyes of the nobility of the time. The key difference from the sword point marriages of the old days was that this was an orderly process, and one where the relationships involved were clear-cut. We might see this as a powerful politician abusing the trust of some innocents put in their charge, but remember, the overlord was only overlord because of a long-standing set of relationships between the vassal family and the overlord family. Theoretically, the wife or daughter was not in the hands of some stranger, but a valued mentor and friend of their father or dead husband. And of course, there is the simple fact that all of this worked out really well for the powerful people who created these laws, and they saw no reason to change it. The most extreme example of this is that these rules seem to have been the key thing that allowed the kings of France to consolidate their rule in the wake of the breakup of Western Francia into a series of dukedoms. In essence, the monarchs waited until the various family lines died out or had disputed successions, and then swooped in to take control of the territory and ultimately break it up, hand it off to a family member, rule it directly, or some combination of these. While military force was often part of this, the legal cover of these marriage laws prevented strong reactions by the local nobility and allowed gradual consolidation over time. Of course, it took centuries... But this is an extremely strong example of how the relationships of women in society is exceptionally important for understanding the development of the states of modern Europe and just how medieval society worked. It is also just very important to mention and recognize that these laws were not the same everywhere and that this had a big impact. In England, as you may have guessed given the example of King John, the overlord did get to help arrange marriage, but the process was much more circumscribed, and the widow's right to choose her own husband was a key part of the process. This was kind of a tradition thing until Prince John abused the practice and it was all written down in a document you may have heard of called the Magna Carta. Of course, all of this reached its most obvious state amongst the nobility, where the combination of finance and political power were most deeply intertwined with a wife's role as a protagonist in the relationships that define society. That said, while the women in these situations had a great deal of potential influence in shaping how things played out in society, they also faced a lot more political pressure on them to conform. Arguably, it was the peasant woman who was the most equal to her male counterparts, sharing equally in their terrifying dance along the knife's edge between survival and death. Most women in the Middle Ages were not able to exert the kinds of control over their lives that I have discussed in today's episode. 
Most women were, of course, illiterate and did not know the law, though we should probably not rely on this factor overmuch. We have a fair amount of court documents that show that illiterate peasants had a startlingly clear understanding of the local laws. Still, some women lived in local jurisdictions that denied them some or all of these rights, notably in Italy. Some women, of course, genuinely liked being married and liked the role of wife or mother, and so they just chose not to exercise the rights that they had. Of those who did not like the roles of wife and mother, many women did not have enough material wealth or political connections to defend themselves from the men, or they lived in an area without stable law and order, and were therefore forced to remain in their socially constructed boxes. Of course, the most powerful position for a woman in the Middle Ages was as a widow, but many women just did not survive their husbands, or did so only in very old age, at which point their only real option was to take up beekeeping. Still, the important thing to keep in mind when considering the place of women in medieval society is that they had a place in medieval society, contrary to a lot of modern mythology. They had some ability to control their actions, and I think it's fair to say much of this ability came from their ability to hold and use property, both inside and outside the bounds of marriage. Okay, kids, that's it for me. Next episode is going to wrap this all up as I try and bring all these threads of discussion of women in the Middle Ages together with all the talk that I've had about other non-normative groups in the Middle Ages. But then after that, we're going to move into our discussion of slavery and unfreedom in the Middle Ages. And then there's going to be a surprise topic after that. To hear all of that, you will need to tune in next time for another mildly cathartic episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.